Hello and welcome to the Energy Talk Podcast. My name is Olubumi Olajide. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. I want to wish all our female listeners a happy International Women's Day and International Women's Month. Thank you so much for continuing to support the podcast. And today we're going to dive into a topic that is very interesting and new to me personally. It's energy finance and impact investing. So Jennifer will be leading this conversation and I hope you learn quite a bit from our guest. So without any further ado, let's jump right in into the conversation. My guest today has positively applied skills in the in financing of oil and gas and clean energy projects. Uh, so I would say, I mean, safe to say to call her an energy expert. So if you're wondering how someone can be so vast in both fields, well, we'll get into it later. So before we go into this, I mean, definitely people will be wondering how, I mean, you get to have your feet in oil and gas and at the same time in RE. So, I mean, just give us a background into what your work life has been and you finding your feet in what you're doing right now. Okay, thank you. So it's an, it's been an interesting few years um, building my career, both in finance and in the energy industry. Um, for clarifications, it's not really oil and gas that I started with. It was really gas and power, but I'll, I'll get there soon. So overall, I'll call myself an impact investing and energy expert um, because my expertise is in the areas of, one, trying to create investment opportunities in the energy sector, um, craft projects that um, are financeable and support those projects and businesses, but also on the energy part of things, um, dealing with the policy aspects of it. So what policies would drive um, improved energy access? Um, how do you implement sustainable energy projects? And really just ensuring that there's access to energy to everyone, especially in Africa. So I started first in management consulting um, a long time ago in KPMG. It was an interesting start to my career because it helped to give me some grounding, a broad sense of being critical in thinking and finding solutions for problems. And then I moved on to energy. So that's when I joined Wando Gas and Power. So this was really mostly um, building energy projects, so developing projects, putting everything that the projects required, mostly gas infrastructure and power, so power plants. So ensuring that the financing is in place, ensuring that all the agreements are properly documented, and just making sure that there's a business case for that project. And then eventually I moved on to investing in clean energy companies. And that's when I did more of renewable energy. So at that point, I realized that um, the world was moving in a certain direction and we must think cleaner. So it was an interesting opportunity to support the clean energy companies in Nigeria, provide them with financing and um, support as they grew. And um, moving from that, I now have a broader portfolio. So more of policy, ensuring that the right policy is in place. Investments as well, trying to draw in the appropriate type of investments for energy, energy solutions, as well as implementations. So supporting implementation agencies as they implement the energy solutions, um, particularly in Lagos State, um, where I'm currently advising the Commissioner for Energy. Um, so it's been an interesting journey so far, and um, it continues to evolve. 
I also advise um, clean energy companies at the same time through various means. One of them is PFAN, which is the Private Finance Advisory Network, where um, we help with project preparation for clean energy companies. And beyond that, I love to give trainings to clean energy companies on access to finance, on project development, on ensuring that their businesses are bankable, preparing for the due diligence process and all of that. So overall, I'd say it's been an interesting growth for me, not really transition completely because I started from gas and power. I still do a lot of that, um, but I've added a lot of renewable energy experience to that and helping to drive the energy mix, a better energy mix in Nigeria and across Africa. So would you say that there's a difference between that of the gas and power and the renewables, right, and in terms of financing and investment, or they are just two separate things entirely that necessarily don't, don't, that don't mix together? Um, in general, I would say they are very similar. Um, so most times when investors or financiers are looking at projects, they are looking to ensure that there's a business case for it and that there's revenue coming from that project or that business. Um, it's the same across any type of projects. More interesting is energy or electricity, which is a unique um, commodity. So for electricity, most times it's a bit more complex to store it, so you must produce when you need it. It's a social good as well, so it's not um, a luxury. And and in general, it's, it's, it's more complex to finance electricity projects. But when you distinguish between gas and power and renewables, I think the biggest learning point from an investment perspective is um, two major things. So one, the, the world globally is moving towards cleaner energy, more renewable energy. Um, so there's generally more funding at this time being pushed towards renewable energy. And so it's easier sometimes to sell a renewable energy project. Um, to investors. But on the other hand, in Africa especially, and in Nigeria, um, it's very new, so it's um, not as familiar to investors as the traditional forms of energy. And so when you're engaging with local investors, you then have to be very mindful and sort of carry them along and educate them as you go along um, to understand the unique um, challenges or the unique um, risks that this industry faces or the sector faces. And I think a, a third dimension of it is um, because a lot of the investments are going through off-grid energy, which is decentralized energy where you don't necessarily supply the energy, renewable energy to the grid, you, you find a specific customer or a specific community where the energy is supplied to. In this case, you're looking at smaller customers that are not your typical customers that um, investors are used to. So this might not be your typical blue chip company or an industrial organization or a commercial entity. So this is maybe a little household or a little community that probably doesn't have clear track record of, of repaying a loan or of credit or, or even any sort of information. So a lot of them don't have their information out there. They might not be banked. So, I think that those unique features of renewable energy, especially in developing countries like Nigeria, is what makes it more interesting and more um, unique when you're 
looking at it from an investment perspective? Yeah, I think this is where we are right now in the world, right? I think um, they're pretty much called mini-grid sort of um, um, portable solar home systems or something like that. So in cases like that where, say, for example, a rural community has never maybe probably seen power before and oh, this company has come in to want to give them power. So how, what is the process like? Because honestly speaking, I don't think an investor will want to come into power search when he has not seen like some sort of um, promise or some sort of get-go or some sort of kick to say, okay, I can promise you that you're going to get your money back within within this specific period of time. And I put out an article recently on the slow momentum of mini-grids in Nigeria. And I could say that from what I had seen so far, it's either that the systems don't end up functioning as much as they're supposed to, or they always don't end up getting as much as they're supposed to from the customers. So it's usually, I won't even call it a win-win at this point. It might be a win-lose or a win-win in the beginning. But towards the end, there's some sort of constraint towards how they're going to get funds to repay back the loan or how um, the, the, the system is supposed to function on its own. So with what you said, yes, it is not something so lucrative to do right now. So which is why... I am fascinated about what you do because how do you get to turn the minds of investors really to say, okay, this is something that needs to be done. And I mean, I can say for, maybe not for a fact per se, but maybe you're going to get your money back or not because honestly, I can't even say, I even know if they probably will. Hmm. I, it's an interesting conversation that can get very complicated. Um, but what I'll start with is to say that a lot of these users in these rural communities um, have been using some form of energy before. So it could be alternatives such as petrol, diesel, torchlights, batteries for torchlights, candles, or whatever it is. So I think the first place to start is understanding what kind of alternatives the users have been using and how much did that cost. Then I think that affects how you design a solution for them. So if you design a solution where that mirrors their previous use, so for instance, they could pay, maybe they used to spend 15 hours a day, for instance, buying candles or batteries or whatever it is. Um, is there a way to mirror that kind of solution when you're providing a renewable energy solution? That comes with its own challenges. So you know the pay-as-you-go model where the energy companies invest in the, in the systems or the infrastructure and they get paid over time. Um, this means that they have to keep on raising funding to, to remain viable. So it's difficult, it comes with its challenges. But a few points I would make about um, determining um, what kind of solutions are ideal for specific communities it would be something that typical companies should do when they are setting a project or a community. So, for instance, you're probably going to look at how far that community is from the grid. Um, it might be more useful and more cost-effective to allow for a grid extension to that community if it's not very far from where the grid stops. Another thing you would probably look at would be the size of the community. How big is that community? What's the population density there? So, typically, if you're looking at off-grid solutions where you have um, more populated areas, you typically be able to easily do a mini grid compared to other solutions. And when the population density is not so great, um, 
most times you look at solar home systems or standalone systems that individual households can use. You also look at the types of activities in that community. How productive are they? What kinds of economic activities take place in, the, in those communities? So all of that would typically determine what kind of solution is best suited for that community, whether it's rural, whether it's very urban, whatever it is. But specifically, when you now go to that community, I mean, different factors would determine how you determine the ideal project for that community. I mean, the system sizing would be very important. So by the time you determine all of the things I mentioned, you need to size appropriately because you want to ensure that there's um, adequate usage of the systems because it gets more expensive if you're not using all of what you've installed. And it will be also important to look at the, your customers. So I think that's a major challenge, customer identification and segmentation. So if you have a product that it's, for instance, you have to pay 200 naira um, a day, but most people in that community earn maybe that's even 200 or even less. It's a bit counterintuitive to expect that um, that solution is suitable for that community because really how much of their income can they spend on electricity when they have other needs, food, um, education, clothing, shelter, everything else. So I think with all of these, I mean, this will determine what kinds of projects you're considering, what kinds of solutions, if the payback period makes sense. So if it's too long, based on the type of financing you're getting. And yeah, it's, it's not something you can cover completely on this podcast, but I mean, um, it's, it's a long process that companies typically go through when they're considering the best solution for various communities. Oh, wow. You've literally almost given us like a 20 minutes talk or lecture already on that. So that I appreciate. Um, but then, you know, I'm kind of wild by, by how you tra- by how you moved, right? I mean, been in the private sector before and then now in the public sector. So, like, do you think that you're still in the process of transitioning or you're still in there or you're still dabbling between both two? Because honestly, I must say that it's, I think there are different dynamics that get to play when you're in the private sector and you're in the public sector. I mean, yeah, I think there are different levels to it, right? So even at that, would you say you've literally been able to like move swiftly or there are certain things that look a bit more different when you were prior in the private than now that you are in the public sector? So it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to actually say if I'm fully in private sector or public sector at this time. Because a lot of the work I do is working with the private sector to get um, the projects going, to get investments in, and um, I'm basically driving that collaboration between the private and public sector. So it's always been about what's the best way at any point in time to make an impact and to move the needle on access to energy for all. When I joined the off-grid energy sector, I mean, I left um, a well-established industry, the gas and power industry, to invest and support off-grid energy companies. And for me, it's really about making life, the lives of other people better. Is either through women who can now spend longer time doing other things because they don't have to cook using dirty solutions. Is it for kids in the hospitals who are given a better chance at life if they have to be in the incubator for other patients, in fact, or even for students in the universities who have to study 
I mean, I'm a very good example. I schooled in the Federal University in Nigeria, and um, it was tough. So at times, you had to study with um, candle, rechargeable lanterns when the central generator was switched off. So I know those challenges. And for me, at any point in time, it's really about how can I make things better um, for others that are beneficiaries of these solutions. So is it through investments in the sector? Is it through supporting the companies that are deploying solutions? Or is it through ensuring that the right policies are in place and the right collaboration is in place between the private and public sector? So for me, I, I sort of feel I, I go in between the private and public sector at this time um, because I'm sort of like the link between the private and public sector. But as you know, I mean, public sector, as we all know, is, is challenging. It can be difficult especially because there are various stakeholders with various interests. So I think that one of the most important skills that I've had to use um, since I started my new role is really stakeholder management and emotional intelligence being the most important skills to be able to navigate um, and get people to rally around something you're passionate about. It's not really by giving instructions, but it's by influencing them to see the importance of what they're trying to achieve. And sometimes what's the need for them? How are you going to even make an impact yourself? Or how are you going to, what's in it for you really? So sometimes it's really about finding what is important to other people and using that to drive whatever you're trying to achieve. Um, speaking on gas and power really, um, there was a recent strike. I think it was sometime before the end of last year. Um, there was a strike by school students in the US to, to discontinue the use of fossil fuel, right? And at that point, like, it kept, I kept having this thought in my head, okay, what is it with Africans right now and still the use of fossil fuel? Are we still going to continue this? Are we, st are we going to stop this? I mean, are we going to also join this action with more developed countries to stop the use of fossil fuels and move to a lot more cleaner version? So I mean I can't or I don't have answers to this because honestly I'm not even in the industry yet to fully answer that. I mean I'm still in my own learning process myself. But I mean having to hear from you and give your own opinion about that, being that you've heard there, you've tasted here, you've seen what it feels like being there and also here. I mean I think your opinion will definitely value at this point. Yes, fossil fuels in Africa. I think it's I think it's a transition. Um I don't expect to see um, African countries totally dump fossil fuels um, at this stage of their development. Um, it's going to be a transition from adding more renewable solutions to the energy mix. It's difficult at this point to say that um, countries should completely go renewable. I mean, for instance, I can say that if you're looking at mobility, for instance, clean mobility, where you use either electric vehicles or clean um, or natural gas vehicles, it's a bit difficult to ask people in countries where they don't have a lot of electricity access already to start using electric vehicles. And if they had natural gas solutions or, or, or um, natural gas within that country, I mean, it wouldn't be sensible to start with what they had if it's cleaner and then transition to um, the cleaner versions of all of it. So I think for me, it's really going to be a transition, not um, a complete shift um, on day one. Um, I think it's getting clear that funding is more focused on renewable energy and it will do well to mix renewable energy into whatever mix any country is looking to, to promote. 
and given the falling prices of renewable energy as well, um, it makes sense for renewable energy to be a strong part of the mix. But I think as this tra transition goes, um, the cleaner fuels, for instance, natural gas, will continue, be, to, continue to be relevant in the short term um, to help to um, balance out the needs and to help for grid stability and all of that, um, although some other solutions like big hydro can help. But natural gas will remain a strong part in the short term. In the long term, I'm hoping for a greater mix of renewables. But I think another challenge is that we haven't been able to cross over to have, for instance, in Nigeria, renewables or recent or newer forms of renewables as part of the grid. So we have the hydro solutions. But for instance, solar hasn't become part of the mix. So I think as we gradually start on bottling and the bottlenecking some of the issues that are in the sector to help to increase the 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 mix of renewable, it would help to then transition. But we can't just jump and say we, we're going to be 100% renewables in 20 years. It's not going to happen. I need clarification on something. You seem to become part of the mix right now. It's like, okay, where have we been? What, so what I mean by that is... Um, Right now, we don't, for instance, have any solar or wind energy or any of that as part of grid supply. So the national grid. Oh, uh, okay. The national grid today is mostly hydro and natural gas. So I think when we start adding more renewable, newer forms of renewable energy to the grid, we can make progress. Off-grid still remains... I mean, the easiest um, way to move forward. So off-grid solutions, as you already know, have been going ahead. But in terms of scale and the level of impact that we've been able to achieve, it's not as significant because they're smaller solutions. So it would be a 50 kilowatt system here, 100 kilowatt system here. We haven't gotten to the point where we have even one megawatt of, for instance, solar solutions in one location. And all of that were, were still in the kilowatts within kilowatts um, most times so i think it, gradually we will get there we have to get there we have to move but um i don't expect that for and for some heavy industries um some of the renewable energy solutions are not yet there to help to drive i mean if you have like large industries you can talk of air travel for instance we're not there yet um okay and, and other forms of um, transportation and, and heavy industries, really. So I think it's a transition that we'll get there. Yeah, good. And do you think this is applicable to other developing countries or it's just specifically for Nigeria's system? I mean, I mean, like the way the constraints are, what the challenges are, you think they are definitely also visible in other developing countries or sub-Saharan, really? Or it's just specific to the Nigerian, and other countries have their own specific problems. Um, most of the most of the problems across the countries are quite similar, some unique. Um, for instance, the fact that most of the distribution companies um, are struggling to raise additional funding, or that the utilities are not necessarily working efficiently, is common across. Um, but the issue of actual, for instance, natural resources. Some countries are richer than others in natural resources. So while Nigeria has a lot of um, natural gas, not all countries have, have that. So that will now determine how fast one country transitions compared to the other. How fast can you solve some of your problems? And if you don't really have a lot of um, natural resources, 
it might just be wiser to, I mean, you would do be better to quickly transition to renewables. But I wouldn't recommend some of the moving to coal at this time that I've some countries have considered that. I just think that is moving backwards and it would be best to move forward to cleaner solutions and then fully to renewables when that becomes possible. Yeah, that is quite good. And then in moving to now transitioning, um, so for the river electrification, so if we're having to transition right now from the old ways to the new ways, so then one of the determines eligibilities for different communities, for example, I know that I, I can probably say that, okay, the government and then private companies won't just go into the market and then pick randomly specific communities to empower or to power with electricity. So like maybe on a summary basis or more like an overview, what I'm, I'm definitely sure people might, might probably want to wonder, okay, what is, what goes be, what's the backstory behind, okay, we're empowering specific locations right now with power because this is what they're probably going through or we're empowering, well, we're empowering this community because oh, their story is quite different from others. So I think I, I sort of hinted a bit. Um, typically, it would be things like um, how far is that community from the grid? So if a community is much closer to the grid, then hopefully the grid can be extended to that community and you don't really need like new off-grid solutions there. Okay. I mentioned um, the size of the communities and the population density. Um, to serve communities that are bigger and have greater impact um, where the population is higher, and particularly where they carry out economic activities, um, it's easier to serve those kind of communities. So typically, those are some of the things you, you would look at. Sometimes the first communities to get electrified, rural communities especially, or the most ideal for certain solutions. Um, before I go ahead and round up this, because I know you're super busy at work and you have to like, I'm definitely sure you're keeping out of your break to do this with us. Um, I would like you to shine a bit more light on what you're doing with your wedding network. See, it is super awesome, super big. And I was like, wow, definitely somebody that knows what I feel. Because I literally searched online, okay, is there a community of women that do something like this or... Is there a community of women that are into energy? Because it's just the men that used to talk about the banter, really. And once a little chips in to talk about it, it's always like, okay, who who is she? Does she know what she's talking about? How am I surprised of what she's saying? So when I saw you had put something together, I was like, oh my God, I need to literally talk to this lady. I need to know who she is and stuff like that. Yeah, so already Network, the African Women in Energy Development Initiative. Just a brief history. When I joined the energy sector, um, I remember I was, I think, the only other woman on the team at that time, in the business development team at my organization then. And the other female at that time in my team was um, a manager. So, I mean, most times you don't, I mean, while you can be open to another female, most times, you know, there's that challenge. Well, the person is a manager as well. And I mean, you need to be cautious because, I mean, just just those dynamics around um, not being sure you can just open up in general about the challenges or opportunities that you see in the sector. So for me, really, when I started my career, I was really just coasting day by day, doing what I needed to do, doing my work, and just basically doing my work. 
but I didn't realize that there was a much broader sector out there. Um, I didn't realize how important it was to have other people supporting me as I went along in that journey and just what the opportunities out there were. And then, so at, at a point, I think I just said, you know what, this, there must be more in this industry. I started becoming more interested in attending programs, workshops, events, and just to learn more about the sector to see what the opportunities were. Um, I didn't have a mentor at that time, um, and I didn't really know how to go about it. Um, who am I going to speak to? How do I? Who are the women in the sector, in fact, that I could speak to beyond the men that were already, thankfully, quite helpful at that time? So for me, it was really a couple of years of just going with the flow and figuring my way around it. Then looking back after a couple of years, I just started wondering, you know, if there was a way where I could have known what to do as I was going ahead, um, it would have been more helpful. I'm sure I would have negotiated better at different times. I'm sure I would have known what kinds of trainings to go for to, or to, to ask for or to or what the opportunities were out there for my career, how to progress, where to go, where to look, who to speak to. And really, that was what gave rise to um, our wedding network. So it's really a network for women across the energy value chain to just provide them with opportunities where they could get mentored, career sponsorship, which is very important. Where another woman might just say, you know what, um, I like this I like this person, I see the person as a, has great potential. I'm going to help to accelerate this person's career, open doors for this person, advocate for this person. Um, sometimes you just want to network and um, learn how other women went through their own career journeys, um, trainings, capacity building, understand what leadership means and what the next level is. So really that's all our ready network is about, promoting the participation of women in the energy sector and for women to get to leadership positions in the sector. So ranging from women already in the sector to those who want to join the sector, to those in school, secondary, tertiary institutions, just providing them with that platform where they can get clarity um, on how they're progressing. But I think another important thing was how to increase the visibility for women in the sector. So a lot of women are in the sector, but people don't even know who they are. They don't know what kind of work they do. They don't know what skills they have, both technical and non-technical. And really for us, it was a way to help to promote the women in the sector, share about the work they do, um, create awareness about their contribution to the sector, and really just find ways to help them to be more impactful in the sector. So really, we have loads of programs, um, some of them planned for this year as well. The mentorship program, we just launched it, and we had a lot of applications. We've just started on with the first batch of 30, and then we'll match the rest of the, of the women that applied in the first round and then we'll call for further applications. We also have programs like Lunch and Learn, broad, Broaden and Enlightening Sessions, so where we have either maybe a breakfast session or a lunch session where we either learn live or maybe um, through a webinar about either actually key industry um, topics or really just basic skills you need as you progress. Um, and we also have other things planned like boot camps for students and prof young professionals who are trying to get into the sector and um, other materials we're going to be sharing about women in the sector. So it's really exciting. I'm excited about the women that we have, especially volunteering 
to actually support other women in the sector. They are the real MVPs. So they give their time to help to coordinate some of the programs that we have and um, just to help to promote other women in the sector. So I'm looking forward to a great year ahead. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. I hope you truly enjoyed that and you learned something new. If you did enjoy the episode, please share it with a friend, a colleague. Give us a like, a rating, subscribe to us if you haven't already. And thank you so much. Don't forget to join us next week for more energy conversations. This episode was hosted by Jennifer Anya. Thank you so much to Jensen for the music and then the words of our guest this week. Have an impactful 2020.